three-way movie gasm. Such a drive to want something sometime. One thing leads to another, I know. Was a time I wanted you for mine. Nobody knew. You arrived like a day, passed like a cloud. I made a wish, I said it out loud. Welcome to the podcast. This is Three Way Moviegasm. My name is Sasha Stone. I'm from AwardsDaily.com. I'm here with Ryan Adams, also from Awards Daily, and Craig Kennedy from LivingInCinema.com. Today on the podcast, we talk about Hereafter, Clint Eastwood's newest film. We're talking about how we think How to Train Your Dragon is the best animated film of the year. And we're also talking about Fair Game, starring Naomi Watts and Sean Penn. First up, it's Hereafter. So Hereafter is um, a film that tells three different stories. It's directed by Clint Eastwood and written by Peter Morgan, and it stars Matt Damon um, as a psychic who thinks he can communicate with dead people. Um, And so the lonely and the mournful seek him out, but of course... It doesn't really ever say that he's communicating with dead people. It, it more or less says this is these are the ghosts that people carry around with them. Um, the film has received mixed reviews. Uh, New York, Los Angeles, Time Magazine all loved it, and then every critic in between kind of panned it. When I talked to Peter Morgan on Friday, he said that he had written the draft for Hereafter, set it aside, and then his friend actually passed away, and that moved him enough to want to take the you know do something with the script that he just wrote um he had also read a book about a woman who who investigated trying to reach one of her loved ones who had also died and he said that that sort of inspired him too but it didn't seem like he was writing from any sort of personal experience just writing from a good idea that he had and um and he sent so after his friend died he decided i want to make this movie now so he sent the script out and him being Peter Morgan, you know, nominate, nominated twice for an Oscar, kind of a heavyweight, I guess, in the screenwriting world. Immediately it got to, to Steven Spielberg, who liked it and was going to do it. Um, but he said he wanted him to make a couple of narrative changes. And just so then he sent it back to um, Peter Morgan, who then wrote something, which he, he would not disclose with the big change that he made. But he made a change that was dramatic enough that Steven Spielberg said, nope, you just ruined the whole script and I don't want you to ruin your script. I think it was better the way it was. So why don't you just put it back the way it was and we'll we'll see if Clint Eastwood wants to direct it. So then two months later, Clint Eastwood wrote, wrote him and said, oh, I love the script. I want to make the movie. And he said that it was strange because Eastwood wanted to make the movie exactly as written. He didn't want to change it. He didn't want Peter Morgan to work on it. And according to um, Peter Morgan, he was very frustrated because he's used to kind of collaborating and rewriting and changing and, you know, seeing how things work. And But he said with Eastwood, he just, Eastwood trusted him and decided to take his time. And that's how um, Hereafter got made. Did you say that he said that there was some indication that the that the change was made to the ending? 
Um, yeah, he did. He said it was some dramatic event, and I asked him what it was, and he said he 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 couldn't he didn't want to talk about that. You know, um, I kind of got the feeling though that he was sort of explaining to people out there why the script seemed um, different than his other scripts. You know, I kind of get that mm -hmm. feeling a little bit. It's it must be hard to write a script, have Clint Eastwood direct it, spend all this time on it, and then just have the critics completely pan it. You know, it, that's the thing is I think I think looking back now i think he might be a little bit <clears throat> he might be being a little bit defensive about some of the negative buzz and it's it's interesting too because when i heard that eastwood was working from a draft rather than a, a finished sort of typical peter morgan screenplay it was when vulture um linked the new york times article and the spin that they put on it was that that, that was why the film was bad because it was it was based on a draft and it had this rough you know, quality to it. And I think even Edelstein, the reviewer for Vulture, um, or for the um, New York Magazine, um, one of his criticisms, one of his criticisms of it was that it was, that, that the script needed a polish. Um, but I think the, the sort of rough hewn direct quality of it is one of the things that makes it great. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I agree with you, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on it my general thoughts on the movie or, mm -hmm. or yeah well my first response when i'd heard that spielberg was involved with it and i know that he was one of the executive producers is that i can imagine the changes that he would have made to it had he directed it and it would have been special effects heavy and overly sentimental with a sweeping john williams score to make sure that you get every emotional beat and clint eastwood avoided all of those things um the Eastwood avoided all of those things, and even the the supernatural element was very subdued. To me, the whole idea of the hereafter was really just kind of a background for the emotional journey that these characters were going through. And um, I, I don't know, it's it, the reviews that I've heard about it, and the things, the reviews that I've read, and the things that I've heard about it. It seems like people are really just misunderstanding it completely. I know, and it feels strange to say that because. You know, I've I've often found myself on the completely on the other side of what critics are saying about a movie, and it's always really frustrating to me. I, I sort of feel like they have this little box, and that if the film doesn't fit into that little box, that it's not successful, and it's so arbitrary and strange. And I didn't really feel better about it until I started to go back and read the reviews of films that we now know are great films, and there's just no question about it. But even those films had sometimes had bad reviews. I'm not really sure why that happens, but I do know that it's sort of human nature in a way to uh, have this sort of group think that goes on. And I know I say that a lot and I, I rely too much on it, but it does seem strange to me that they jumped on hereafter the way they have and just, you know, seem to relish taking it apart. I, I think the trend to fit something into a box and if it doesn't fit neatly into a, to a box to throw it in the garbage um, has been magnified in the last, I don't know, decade or so since we've been really focusing early on the Oscar race and the festival scene. And it's like, it seems to me there's a large percentage of, of reviewers or, or, or film types, and I won't name any names, who show up to these festivals with their fingers in the air looking to see which way the winds are blowing right. rather than trying to just appreciate the movies for what they are. They're, they're, they're trying to fit them into boxes and decide if they're Oscar worthy and this and that. And I think quality tends to get lost in the shuffle. 
Well, can I say that about Hereafter in particular, that they did try to put Hereafter in a box a, a year ago, and they put it in the completely wrong box. They were, they were, the word was out that it was a supernatural thriller, and it's neither one of those things. It's not supernatural, and it's not a thriller. And whoever said that about the movie and got the word out about that did a, a great disservice to the movie, I think. And that stuck. And I think that people still had trouble getting over that and were sort of expecting it to be at least sort of a thriller. But it wasn't in any way. And maybe the reason that Spielberg wanted some changes made is it's a pretty low-key movie. At least the script. I haven't seen the movie, but I've read the script, and, and it seems pretty low-key to me. There were no big reveals, no twists that took you by surprise. Nothing. There's nothing really surprising about it that would that's typical of a Spielberg sort of thing, and no big gut-wrenching ending either. It was a really low-key ending, the way yeah. I read it. That was one of the things Peter Peter Morgan was saying was that um, uh, he said you couldn't find two more different directors to take on this project. Like, and we were he and I were sitting there trying to imagine what or I was anyway, trying to imagine what the Spielberg version of Hereafter would have been. And and Morgan was just saying that he thought that Spielberg was always kind of wanting more definitive answers and that Clint was very comfortable with there not being definitive answers. And, and he, the way Clint put it was that he wanted his audience to come to bring something to the experience, not give it all to them. Mm-hmm. And um, which is interesting because that's sort of the opposite of where he was when he did Million Dollar Baby, which to me is a film that really does give you everything. It doesn't leave any room for ambiguity or your own feelings or your own thoughts. Leaving things open to interpretation is a recipe for disaster. I mean, look at the big fuss about um, even the highly regarded No Country for Old Men. People didn't know what to make of the ending because, you know, it wasn't spelled out for them. And people seem to reject not having everything tied into a neat little bow i get the feeling sometimes that it's like a bunch of people don't really know what to make of a movie and so they look around and see what other people are saying okay that person said this all right well i agree with them you know because it's Mm -hmm. embarrassing to be on your own about a movie it's it can be embarrassing i mean if you're talking about just regular human behavior if you say i liked the lovely bones you know, people look at you like, are you crazy? I can't believe you like that movie. Or, I mean, I guess the situation can work in reverse. Like if Guy Lodge goes on Twitter and says he hated a movie that everybody loves, you know, um, A, he gets a lot of attention for being that person. Um, and But B, it takes kind of a lot of nerve to stand up against, you know, the generally assumed opinion. So I don't know about that. I, I mean, I, you can't say, oh, the... You can't be a person who says, hereafter is only a good movie if this, 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 and this critic said it was a good movie, you know? Then then who are you, really? What are you, you know? It was strange to write my own review of it because I was aware of what the negative buzz out of Toronto was. I didn't know specifically what it was. I know that somebody called it the worst thing that Clint Eastwood had ever done, and that was the only thing thing specifically that I'd heard. Um, But after I saw it, and I really liked it, I'm sitting there reviewing it, knowing that the general consensus was against it and I kind of felt like an idiot and I tried really, really hard not to, the temptation in that circumstance is to sort of review defensively Mm. and sort of imagine all of the arguments against a film and then sort of address them and I tried to just stay away from that and just review it in a vacuum and just kind of respond to my own feelings over it. Yeah. But it it was a strange experience. Well, I think you had sort of a similar reaction to, um, to the social network. Like you, you 
didn't like it as much as everybody else did, right? And then you felt kind of like, well, now I got to think about why didn't I like it and so many other people did, you know? Yeah, in that case, I had to ask myself whether my more modest reaction was a response to what I perceived as being overhyped when it first came out. Hmm. And I thought, I, I kind of worried that I maybe went in with my arms crossed, kind of wanting to tear it down a little bit just because I was being contrarian. But um, and, and I've actually thought about that one a bit since I've seen it and I, I've warmed up to it but a, even a little more than what I originally thought of it. And I should say that I did like it. I just wasn't as crazy about it as everybody else was. Mm -hmm. I, f I forgot. Did you give it four stars out of five? Yeah. So I, I didn't feel a, a, it was great, except I didn't feel the same emotional resonance to it that a lot of people felt. And I didn't, it, it, it was missing something in the emotion department for me. One of the things that Peter Morgan said in our interview was that, um, we were both discussing that Americans in general feel uncomfortable with ambiguity and that he said here, movies are managed. They're tested to death to the point where um, they know exactly how people are going to respond or they hope they know how people are going to respond. Um, and they're sort of focus grouped and tested and managed and that you have what he calls audience management over here and you don't really have it over there. And that's why to him hereafter seemed a lot more like a European or he was saying Eastern European film um, than an American film. It, did, it didn't hold the audience by the hand and, and lay everything out for them. It, it left some of the heavy lifting up to the audience, but I think that that's, that's a good thing. And actually the part where the movie really clicked and was, was really going to work for me was actually near the end. I mean, I was fascinated the entire way through watching what was going on, but unsure of what direction it was going to take. And where I knew that I was going to love it is when Matt Damon basically admits that he doesn't entirely know what happens after we die there, and, and that the filmmakers weren't going to give us a concrete, you know, vision of heaven or anything like that. I think that's, that's one of the troubles that um, the Lovely Bones ran into was that it offered a vision of the afterlife and it, it didn't jive with a lot of people's vision of the afterlife. And I think that's why they sort of rejected it. Right. And I think if Hereafter had done the same thing, I think it would have run into trouble. It did the only thing it possibly could have done, which is which is leave the subject vague and unexplained, but illustrate the impact that the very question has on us as, as people. And yeah. I thought it was great. Yeah, funnily enough, um, Peter Morgan said that... Uh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'm just like, Peter Morgan said this, and Peter Morgan said that. When I was talking to Peter Morgan, we were sitting there, we were trying to Why don't to we just call Peter Morgan and let him talk for himself? Do you still have his number? Like, we were sitting there trying to think of this, and, you know, we were just chatting. No. My, friend, my friend Peter says. I'm sorry. Oh, I didn't God. even think that at all. It's so lame, but but I will just say one more thing, which is that he he had written in, the afterlife and Eastwood took it out and I think it's because Peter Morgan was more of a you know more of a believer than than Clint Eastwood um, oh yeah you know a wise 80 year old man who's as intelligent as Clint Eastwood is you know he knows that it it's an ambiguous story and yeah I don't know so I don't know where it fits in with American audiences because they're not going to be comfortable with not having an afterlife but they're not going to be comfortable with not not having an afterlife you know so you know, another bad thing that, about um, spelling things out to audiences too much and managing them the way that Peter Morgan said that ma audiences are managed is that we're managed from the time that the trailers start coming out. We're even managed by what the word that leaks out 
and blogs and with clips and everything, they're, they're, they try to manage our, our, our expectations and preconceptions before we even go into the movie. And that's really damaging for a movie that is open-ended like this because the people who cut the trailers are not the same people who make the movie. And the trailer tries to make the movie into something that it's not in the same way that they tried to sell it as a supernatural thriller because they think that's going to get people in the theaters. And that's just a bait-and-switch thing that's only going to frustrate people. Yeah, I think we're in a really dangerous time right now in terms of movie watching. It's kind of really ugly these days. Um, it seems like since when I was a young person in the '80s, you know, we'd we'd go to we'd you know go to the movies, go to an art house, we'd see a movie, we'd go sit down, we'd talk about it over coffee, and maybe the next morning we'd read a review by Kenneth Tran, or you know, maybe if we were really lucky, we'd get to read a review by David Thompson or someone with you know who wrote a, in a paper that we maybe had access to. Maybe it was Janet Maslin from the New York Times or something. So you had to go to the library and look for those. They, you couldn't just click on them yeah. with, from your desk. But yeah. it wasn't so important, really. It was interesting and insightful what they had to say. But it didn't really matter. You still loved mm -hmm. the movie. You still talked about it with your friend over coffee. You know, it wasn't a success, fail, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down kind of thing. Um, nowadays, it's it's a miracle if any film can get through the gauntlet that it has to go through before it actually reaches audiences. Um, and frankly, it's a miracle when a film does well, like Inception or social network. It's like, okay, did it did it please everybody? Is everybody happy now? Okay, now we can move on, you know. Right, those are good examples, Inception and Social Network, because it was really locked down. You could not find those scripts anywhere, and you couldn't find any any solid evidence about them. Um, and it didn't stop people from making stuff up and for speculating about what it might be. But um, they did a really good job of trying to keep those movies under wraps until the time that they were released. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um Anyway, I highly recommend Hereafter. I think it's a movie that makes you think, and it um, it's beautifully done. It's incredibly moving, I thought. I mean, I, I really was moved by it and maybe even a little bit changed by it in some ways. And I thought Matt Damon gave a great, uh, a very understated performance, but it's one of his best somehow, you know? It's fantastic. It's a role that easily could have gotten away from a, an actor, um, but he... He relies on his charm without turning it up too much. Um, he's got a sort of a sly, sort of everyman sense of humor, and he's very likable and very um, identifiable. Um, Can I ask, since I'm the only one of the three of us who hasn't seen the movie, uh, how much of the movie is really divided into, is it really three equal stories? Is it three equal stories? Yeah. I think it really is. They, they, the three stories actually almost stand up really well all by themselves. As I was thinking about it afterwards, I was really thinking of it as being sort of an omnibus, sort of three short stories put together kind of film. It's funny because my buddy Peter Morgan, you know, my best friend Peter, <laughs> we were chatting the other day and um, no, he, he actually said that, um, that Kathleen Kennedy, who took the script from, you know, who got the script to Spielberg, he said that everybody had their own idea of who to take out. Like Kathleen Kennedy would have kept, I forget how he said it, but he said something like Kathleen Kennedy would have let, lost the French lady and lost Matt Damon, but kept, no, Peter Morgan would have kept the twins and lost the French lady and lost Matt Damon. Kathleen Kennedy would have kept Matt Damon and lost the twins and the French lady and Steven Spielberg would have wanted to keep the French lady and it was something like that. Like they, they all had their different ideas of which ones to take out and I guess Clint Eastwood was the only one who wanted all three of them kept in there. 
So that's sort of interesting to think about, too. You know, how much different would it have been if Peter Morgan had gotten to hack away at it like he wanted to, you know? Right. And it's sort of depressing because now that the film is getting such bad reviews, mixed reviews, some really great reviews, we should say, you know, people are thinking, well, God, you know, maybe he should have. Maybe he should have hacked away at it. You know, to me, I don't think so, but... I have a feeling it's a movie that we're going to be revisiting throughout the season. I mean, there's a there's a rush to judgment right now to cross it off the list. Um, people have this need to want to simplify things as quickly as possible. I mean, it was just a couple of weeks ago when things had been narrowed down to just two films. So it's not surprising that people are quick to throw this one in the can. I mean, it's only got a 53 on on Metacritic, but if you look at the numbers, it's a split reaction. It's not a mediocre reaction. It's some very strong positives and some very strong negatives so i wouldn't be willing to um to write it off right off its oscar chances just yet i don't know that the screenplay is its its natural strength um mm. but i think it's way too early to be dismissing it altogether the thing i notice about academy voters and voters in general is that they're like high school voters voting on homecoming queen it's like everybody likes the winner they don't like the loser so i don't think some of the time it's just i really liked this movie so i'm voting for it but a lot of times it's no, you know, I heard that movie wasn't very good, you know, or it's just it's not going to be a number one. See, the way the Best Picture 10 works is that it's just a compilation of all the number ones. So you have to figure how many people in the Academy are going to put Hereafter as their number one film. You know, it might be number three, number four, maybe even number 10. But is it going to be anyone's number one? You know, I don't know. So um, that's that. That was a conversation killer. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, Stone. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Sorry. <laughs> oh, God. Um, well, it's just, you know, it's a hideous. The whole Oscar race is ridiculous. It's not even anything to take seriously. It's just, you know, it's just a game. It's just a dumb game. and um, It's fascinating and horrifying at the same time and frustrating. Yeah, you can't look away. um, so when we were talking about hereafter we talked a little bit about how um oscar perceptions can can early on be locked in stone um and i think that's the case with the animation race at this point as well i mean people are talking about toy story 3 as a lock obviously for one of the slots and and it's assumed to be one of the top 10 as well um, but there's another animated film that came out this year that's better that didn't make quite half the money and um, it's coming out on DVD or it did just come out on DVD on Friday um, How to Train Your Dragon the best thing I think that uh, DreamWorks has done in the animation department so far yeah I have to agree um, I loved that movie I just mean that it's to me, it was wholly original, you know, and I love Toy Story 3, too. I, I'm not really comparing the two. I'm just saying that Toy Story 3 is, you know, kind of closes out a series. But How to Train Your Dragon was some was something brand new. And um, it's hard for another movie studio to break through because Pixar just, you know, dominates. And Toy Story 3 is going to probably get a Best Picture nomination, too. And How to Train Your Dragon, I doubt it will, but... Um, but it's to me, it's the better of the two. If I made a top ten right now, How to Train Your Dragon would be on it, and with all the other live action films, and Toy Story three wouldn't. Um, mm. And I think it's the freshness that you talk about that is part of the key. Um, Toy Story three was great; it was well done. I loved, especially the beginning and the ending. 
but the whole middle there was this sense of familiarity because the, the characters were the same and the main characters didn't really go through any haven't really to me gone through any kind of a story arc over the three films the toys have stayed relatively the same it's the human characters that have changed around them and that's sort of where the emotional hook comes from but the most of the focus is on the toys and they're the same from film to film to film and here was a whole new look a whole new set of characters and it, it was it, it felt from scratch and it was just it was incredibly refreshing yeah, I mean, I don't even think they slipped into the easy cliches in that movie that they could have. Um, I, I was surprised all the way through. I was gr really glad that the dragon doesn't die at the end um, because I don't think I could have taken it. You know, I just it's been a while since I loved a, char a character as much as that dragon. Um, it's such a great metaphor for fear in general. You know, mm -hmm. the film, it's like... Anyone can feel free to tell me I'm full of shit on Toy Story 3. I know I liked it a little bit less than the both of you, so don't... Don't hesitate to uh, tell me I'm full of it. I don't hate the movie at all. My only, the only comments I would make was that I think it has a chance of being upset for the for the animation prize because it's such an expected gimme, um, mm -hmm. and you always have to worry about that. Like with Up in the Air, Up in the Air was an it was a gimme. Everybody thought Jason Reitman was going to get that, you know, get that Oscar win. They just figured it was a gimme. You know, he's got it. It's in the bag. It's George Clooney. They got all these nominations and. I feel like that is sort of happening with Toy Story 3 um, that I think people are just expecting it's going to win because it made $400 million. It's one of the highest reviewed films of the year. Everything about it makes sense except that How to Train Your Dragon is a better movie. Right. So it's going to be an interesting race to watch. I don't think Disney should sit back and, you know, and not expect How to Train Your Dragon to do well because I think it's very stealthy and um, side by side, Dragon's the better movie. Go well, I have ahead. a lot to say about it. And one of the things is that if we're going to be talking about um, an animated movie that should belong in the Best Picture nominee category too, I like for I like to think of those animated movies as a complete movie, as far as cinematography and editing and set design, costume design, and all of those things. How to Train Your Dragon surpasses Toy Story 3 for me. Mm. And even the human emotion is, is lacking in Toy Story 3. It's lacking in all of the Toy Story movies, really, because the humans, you, you hardly ever see them. And the ones you do see, I know we're supposed to sympathize with Andy and we're supposed to identify with him, but I don't trust that kid. He cannot keep up with his shit. He can't, <laughs> you know, every time you, you turn around, his toys are being put up at a, at a, you know, hard sale or he's putting them up in the attic by mistake. And so, you know, I don't identify with him. That's a collector's nightmare, isn't it? It's sort of like anybody who collects things would just be driven crazy by that. Well, I know. And I, I do fear, too, that if there's ever a Toy Story 4, that we're going to see Andy on Antiques Roadshow, with the, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Selling the still in box Buzz Lightyear. Exactly. Right. Or one of his one of his sticky fingered little kids will be doing it. He's like old and in a retirement home and the little kids are selling him off. Yeah, but really, but I do ha I do want to say again about the cinematography and how to tra train your dragon. Roger Deakins was a visual consultant on that movie, and you can really tell. I mean, that movie is gorgeous to look at. The it's it's it's, it's more it's more beautiful to look at, I thought, than Avatar. Wow, that's really saying something. I would agree with that, and I would say I would add that to the 3D gimmick, which I'm not a big fan of at all. That that's the one. Uh, How to Train Your Dragon is the one film that I've seen where, to me, 
it, I was actually glad that I saw it in 3D rather than in 2D. I mean, I know everybody loves the 3D in Avatar, and I'm not going to start a fight about it, but I wasn't crazy about it. But for me in How to Train Your Dragon, the moments when it was used most effectively were the flying sequences, and it was the closest I've ever seen on film to the feeling, capturing the feeling that you have when you have a flying dream. And they were the those scenes were used at, at emotional high points in the film. So the 3D wasn't just a, a wow factor. It, it, it actually added to the emotion of the film for me. I, me too. The 3D was so effective that you almost got vertigo in the, sitting in the, in, the, in the theater seat. It was, mm-hmm. you know, felt the sensation of flying really, really well. Yeah. Um, I, and the, the thing I loved about it the most was that it was about, um, I'm going to get my, my fear metaphor out now. So you guys better be ready. <laughs> I'm prepared. Like, no. um, just that it's, if parents wanted to use um, How to Train Your Dragon to talk to their kids about war, they really could because it's, it's so much about unknown fear and putting um, labels on um, the, the other or the unknown. Uh, you know, in this case, it would be the dragons, but, you know, it could be put on anything. Um, mm-hmm. It's how human beings are. Like we just, especially when it's something that's been handed down for generations and God, we're seeing it so much right now, just in terms of uh, racism and homophobia and, you know, the illegal immigration situation. I mean, fear, you know, it, it has substance to it. It is a thing. And I thought how to train your dragon. I don't even know if it intended to do that, but that's certainly something that is very strong. Oh, in that. I, I was worried that it might try to do it too much because um, I could see that's the direction that, that, I was, that I was starting to follow with it. And I don't make very many notes before we do these podcasts, but this is one thing I wrote down when I saw when I thought about the movie is a line from the movie um, where he says, they're not what we think they are. We don't have to kill them. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I thought, oh, they're going to be making too much of this, but that was as far as they went with it. That was the point right there. That's the point that stuck with me. They're not what we think they are. We don't have to kill them. Hmm. He was talking about the dragons, of course, but we know that that's a metaphor for or can be taken as a metaphor for for Muslims, right? Right, especially now. I mean, it's it's to me that when, as you say that, it's just I remember that part in the film and how 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 great it is. You know, you just your emotions are wrapped up in it from beginning to end, you know, and, and Toy Story 3, as much as I loved it. Again, I don't mean to keep comparing the two, but um, I think it has one very emotional moment at the end, and that's it. Whereas the first Toy Story had a lot going on. It had the mis- the weird, deformed, misfit toys, you know, from next mm-hmm. door that the, that the bully had taken apart. And they were these sad, you know, wonderful creatures. And um, Toy Story 2, you know, it had, it had um, Jesse. It had, you know, something unique about it. Toy Story 3 kind of pulls them all together, and it ends the series nicely, but on its own... You know, it to me, it, it doesn't really stand out as one of the best Toy Story movies, one of the best Pixar movies, and one of the best animated movies. So, I think that's fair to say, and I think it's fair to compare them, even though we I, we do need to resist the urge to 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 bash Toy Story three, which none of us are doing. I loved it too. I just don't think it's as good as How to Train Your Dragon. And one way that it's not, and one thing that I think is a little bit unfair, is that if people vote for Toy Story 3, they're going to be voting for the series. And we, the impact that Toy Story 3 has on us is because of the series. We've been preconditioned to feel this way about these characters for the past 15 years. And right. that's a little bit of an unfair advantage for a movie to have. And it shouldn't count. It shouldn't all be counted as a quality that Toy Story 3 as an individual movie has. It's not the same situation as 
as the Lord of the Rings. That was written as a as a single literary trilogy. Mm. That's the way it was conceived. With Toy Story three, these are rooms that keep being added on to a great structure, and they're doing a they've done a really great job of of mixing it up and finding new variations to play on the same themes, but it's the same theme again and again for me. And I, I agree with what Craig said. There's not that there, that story arc is missing. The story arc and for the characters is missing. Hmm. Well, and it's it's a nice conclusion to a series that I never really needed to be a series to begin with. I was happy with the first Toy Story, and would have been content leaving it at that and having the creative minds at Pixar move on to other characters rather than come back to familiar territory as good as toy story 2 was and as much of it was an improvement on the original in terms of the animation and the technology it still had this quality of sort of been there done that and it just seemed well, more like like they were they were bowing down to pressure from disney to have a franchise more than they were responding to their own creative urges i think working for toy story 3 is the fact that toy story 1 never won an oscar like um so they feel like it hasn't ever been honored, the series yet. And that, like you said, this would be kind of honoring the whole series. And I mm -hmm. think for what they had to do, they made good movies, like Craig is saying. You know, they did have right. to, they wanted to make sequels. And for what, you know, um, I mean, I don't think that, has Pixar made any other sequels besides Toy Story? With They're working on a couple more now, but the, the Toy Story is so far the only ones that have been in theaters. Oh, I see. Yeah, because they're doing Monsters Inc. and Car Cars Two. I think is actually their next film. Yikes! Well, um, it's just a good thing they don't ruin some of the best Pixar movies, like Finding Nemo and Wall-E and Ratatouille. I mean, if they started making sequels of those movies, I don't know. I might give have to give up on Pixar. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, can you imagine Ratatouille with a sequel? I mean, that no. movie it just ends, you know, and it has a beautiful ending. And you know, just like you say, keep the creativity going. You know, keep thinking of new ideas. It's better than just revisiting the past. And that's where How to Train Your Dragon, back to this topic, that's where How to Train Your Dragon excels is because it was a truly unique and original idea right. from made from whole cloth from scratch, and I really respect that. Hmm. It kind of paid the price for that, though, at the box office because it. I remembered when it first opened, it made like 40-something million its opening weekend, which was less than... Monsters versus Aliens had made on the same weekend the year before, and there were a lot of articles about how you know uh, DreamWorks had blown it, and you know they didn't advertise it right, and it was going to be not a bomb, but it wasn't going to be very successful. But then, if you look at the the box office numbers for the first two months that it was in theaters, it never dropped more than thirty five percent from one week to the next. It was only in the ninth week when it lost. Um, almost a thousand screens did it finally make a 60% jump or 60% mm. drop so <clears throat> one, I think it, it had a hard time getting off the ground but word of mouth people saw it and loved it and I remember the audience of little kids that I saw it with went crazy for it it held its word of mouth so I think it, it had a hard time getting audiences to begin with but once people found out how great it was it just kept playing well I'll admit even for myself when How to Train Your Dragon came out in March, I had thought I had just about had enough of flying dragons for a while, you know, because we had had quite a bit of flying dragons in December and January and February with oh, Avatar. Right. So we can move on now to um, 
it is annoying to me that like 15 bloggers go to a film festival and suddenly they think they have the Oscar race all figured out, you know, sorry, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) It's going to be time, you know, the Academy, they're very different. Their sensibilities are different than, than young, young male bloggers, you know, and, and people come out with these statements that they think they're so confident about it. And they don't seem to remember that like years prior, they would say stuff like, no way is no country for old men going to win best picture. No way can the departed win best picture because of the ending. You know, it's just, I know I sound like a broken record. I keep bringing that stuff up, but when you've been doing it for over a decade, you know, you do start to notice patterns and that's one pattern to me is early shooting your wad early like that, you know, is a mistake. You've got to always keep an open mind. And, um, especially when you shoot the wad to, with a, with a, <laughs> to on a small group of people. With metallic sounds in the background, <laughs> you know, because those because people are uh, are unwilling to accept what those small group of people want to tell them to accept. And welcome back to Oscar Bukaki. We're just talking about <laughs> the film festival circuit. <laughs> oh God, oh. that's genius. I know. I'm not gonna keep my long cackle on there um do we want to just up and talk about fair game the movie or should yeah we... do you want me to do another shitty rambling introduction like i did without a trainer i Dragon? love it yeah i love those <laughs> you do i love the shitty introductions <laughs> you love the shitty rambling introductions you said yeah okay yeah talk about destroying expectations <laughs> <laughs> that's my that's my little trick. I do that. <laughs> Keep expectations low and then wow people. <laughs> that's true. You do do that. You do wow people. I don't think that's necessarily true. I do keep expectations low, though. That part is true. Yeah, it's always a good idea. So um, you want to do your shitty, shitty rambling <laughs> intro <laughs> for fair game? <laughs> Craig's shitty rambling. Um, yeah, okay, the calcified so- Oscar segment and the <laughs> scatological Oscar Scatological. Don't forget Oscar Bukaki. Oscar Bukaki. I think if these were keywords on the blog, how many people would be searching for us? We get mad hits. Oscar scat. <laughs> what is it? It just boiled okay. down to that, though. That would be a great name for a website. Although you'd get sued so fast. Because uh, the poor Oscar whore, he got sued. Oscar <laughs> Which one? Oscar, Oscar you have Whore. to be more specific. There's so many of them. <laughs> yeah, really. Oscar got sued. And, oh, okay. and they also didn't like Oscar Nazi. <laughs> anyway, sorry, we're, we're missing, we're cutting into the, the, the shitty rambling intro. So we need to. All right, and we have to stop giggling too because people want to. <coughs> it's a private joke and they want to. Yeah, I'll have to cut out the giggling. Let them do the giggling, right? Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> Knock on wood. <laughs> so we've sort of been discussing um, Oscar expectations for the movies that we've been talking about in terms of Hereafter and um, How to Train Your Dragon. One film which has surprisingly, at least that I've noticed, not had any or hardly any Oscar talk at all is Fair Game and uh, the, the Valerie Plame uh, story from Doug Lyman starring Naomi Watts and Sean Penn, which is coming to theaters soon. Um, Sasha and I saw it the other night and I was surprised at how terrific it is because there hasn't been a lot of talk about it. Oh God, I got in such a horrible Twitter fight about this, but you know, because 
as you know, as was the film was sort of dismissed in one tweet by someone who said, you know, it was just kind of a shrug of the shoulders at Cannes, you know, as if those people there were really all that matters in the world, you know, um, that that their judgment is so, you know, um, what, what's the word? Their judgment is so um, what's sophisticated the word? or. Uh, no. I mean, like powerful or all-knowing, influential, or influential yeah. or empirical. Is that a word? No, mm-hmm. it is. It's it. the wrong word. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> definitely a word. <laughs> um, just, the, just that you know that <clears throat> as if you know these people who saw the movie are the ones that get to decide if a film is good or not. You know, and some of them are critics and some aren't. You know, and so I, I read the reviews for Fair Game, and there are some of them on on the web. And they're they're fairly mixed, actually, more so than you'd think. Um, but what did you think of the movie, Craig? I thought it was terrific. I went into it um, with a lot of skepticism. Um, I assumed that it would be sort of a another green zone disappointment where they take this extremely important topical subject and reduce it to a crummy little action thriller, which for me was all green zone really was. And I was afraid that the same thing was going to happen with Fair Game, but um, they totally avoided that. They managed to let the politics of it um, remain really important and, and kind of at the forefront, and yet it still was an entertaining movie um, all by itself. At its core was this um, great story between this this really interesting couple, Valerie Plame and, and Joe Wilson, and they were both um, really great performances from Penn and, and Watts. Yeah, I agree. Um, I thought that they were the two of them um, gave a kind of combination performance that reminded me of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Um, not that that was the, the tone of it or the theme in any way, but it was um, seeing two actors really just in it together and doing working off of each other and obviously not phoning it in. Both of them right. really working hard on their performances and you know, I know that the real life story kind of overshadows the film and that there's a lot of um, political um, strife around this movie and that the right are going to think it's ridiculous and laugh at it and the left are going to get mad all over again about what happened. Um, but as I was saying to Craig outside the screening, it's just to me, it's like the, this year uh, the chickens are coming home to roost. You know, it's it's time to pay the piper. If I can mix my metaphors all over the place, uh, <laughs> you know, because, you know, hell, look at inside job, you know, fair game. You know, it's time to 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 really start talking about this criminal administration that we all just lived through, you know, that nobody's doing anything about or even talking about. Because after the war in Iraq, it was, you know, the, the press was silenced for the first time. You know, I'm sorry, I'm just rambling. This is the, okay. This I, is I'm political. sure the, the right would love this movie to go away and would love the whole topic to go away. And, and we're hearing that already. The people are saying that it's old news. Who cares? But, you know, it's, it, we'd better care because, um, it, like you said, the, the, the topic is it, we're still being affected by it. I don't think I, I worry that people are, are not going to, though. We're so um, we're so short sighted and narrow minded and selfish everybody's all talking about the economy and, and the unemployment rate. And that's all people are thinking about right now. And to go back mm. and revisit something that happened um, a number of years ago, even though that thing turned out to be part of the reason why the deficit is so crazy right now, which is what everybody's crying about. 
Um, people just don't want to talk about it. They want to move on. It's it's this unfortunate American trait to just bury something and, and move on to the next. I understand that. I, I was at a dinner the other night, and, and my very liberal friend was going on and on about how much she was angry at Obama, you know, and it's sort of like there's only room for one person to be burned, you know, right now. It's not, you know, maybe they're just done with being mad about Bush. Um, I don't know. I think that the Oscars kind of catch up with political um, things long after they happen, you know, and they and it takes them some time to ruminate on them. And the further away you get from something, the more profound and interesting it is to talk about it. And, you know, the Valerie Plame thing, I didn't really get it at the time. I mean, I sort of got it. And, you know, it didn't take the movie to really make me understand because I read I've read stories and I tried to do as much background as I could on it. But um, <clears throat> other than the fact that it's just a good movie with good performances, you know, good directing and pretty good writing. Um, other than that, it does have, to me, broader appeal in that it does nail the Bush administration to the wall for being the crooks that they were, you know. And if people just want to shit can that and say, OK, fine, we're not even going to deal with that. Well, I can tell you in five or ten years, people will look back at that movie and say, wow, I wonder why nobody paid any attention to it then. And it should be pointed out that, at least from my perspective, that the, the politicking of it, though it's clear which side they're taking, for the most part, managed to be pretty restrained, which is pretty surprising when you consider that Sean Penn is in it, um, not a guy known for his restraint when it comes to matters that are political. There were only a couple of scenes um, that that got a little bit heavy-handed and messagey. The rest of it yeah. uh, was handled really effectively. Yeah, and and this it's really the end part. Okay, sorry, spoiler. This is a spoiler alert, sort of. I'll try not to make it a spoiler, but you know. You mean for those people who who don't know that there were no WMDs in Iraq? <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, anybody who's watched or read anything on Joe Wilson, it's not going to be a spoiler for them because they already know that he's he's an, he'd become an activist, you know. But I think that seeing Sean Penn saying his words is a little bit redundant, you know, because yeah. we already know how Sean Penn feels about it. So I think that's going to take away a little bit of the impact, despite the fact that it's one of, you know, it's a very, very good performance of his. <clears throat> but, um, you know, I think the the part that, one of the, the things that stuck out was the hilarious portrayal of um, Karl Rove. <laughs> Karl Rove came out and everybody laughed in the audience because it was just so funny. It was so cartoony, the guy that they picked <laughs> to play him. And, um, you know, but he's a clown in real life, and so that's that's a, a, you know, appropriate, I think. It's yeah. not as if he's not funny and hilarious in real life. So Yeah, nobody minds lampooning Karl Rove, seriously. He's, yeah. he's mm -hmm. as corrupt. Well, was it distracting for you? Like, I remember in um, W, um, the Condoleezza Rice character was like a Saturday Night Live sketch, and it just totally dragged me out of that movie, which wasn't a great movie to begin with. But yeah. was was the Rove impersonation for you that much of a distraction, or was it just kind of a funny aside? Only in so much that it's right-wing fodder to write the movie off, you know, right. in that way it did, because they're going to say, oh, they just made him this joke, you know, this this silly person, you know. But hating Karl Rove as much as I have for all these years, it was funny to see him portrayed that way. It actually made me laugh a little bit. But it does it does sort of shout from the rooftops that this film is a liberal-leaning um, film, for sure, you know. Um, At the same time, it I thought it did a surprisingly good job of laying out the case for the other side a little bit. I mean, 
it didn't go to the wall for for the Bush administration, but it did remind you of how fearful we were at that time um, in the post 9-11 you know, universe. Um, there was that scene where um, Scooter Libby had come down to the CIA to grill the, the analysts and try and get them to give them the information that they wanted. And but what I was saying was that, that whole conversation where you're talking about percentage of, of certitude and is 1% uncertainty enough under the circumstances as we now know them in the world that we live in. And that was the main argument of the Bush administration all along was that the world has changed and we can no longer, you know, take chances. I think they were wrong um, and <laughs> they sold our country down the river, but a lot of people believed that and it, and it, and it didn't. And I, and I thought it, it, it reminded us of that. I think I thought pretty well. Yeah, I think so too. But I, I also um, appreciate your point about it. Americans feeling like they're moving on because if anything's sort of been put to rest, it's unfortunately it's Iraq, you know, um, because he's already, we've already made plans to leave and, you know, it's sort of now moved on to Afghanistan and um, the sense of urgency isn't there anymore. And so what you're left with is how much do you care about Valerie Plame and Joe Wilson? How much do you care about them? You know, right. do, you, do you see them as um, left-wing activists who are just trying to get that administration? Or do you see them as American citizens, one who was serving her country um, and another who was being a good journalist? Um, it's just going to depend on where you sit. And fortunately for them, the Academy are mostly left, left-leaning. Um, right. That is lucky. I was gonna. I was gonna. The reason I'm not saying very much is because I didn't get invited along to the movie date that you and Craig went on. And so, <laughs> well, um, Peter Morgan was there too, but <laughs> all three of us. But I haven't hands. seen it. But I will say that it reminds me of what you said before about having a little distance between the movie and the actual events is is a helpful thing because it gives you the pers- perspective of distance. Um, all the President's Men was four years after the Nixon incident, and that's a that's a pretty good amount of time. Four or five years, I think, is a, is a good is a good distance to look back on something. And I I wonder how all the president's men was perceived by the. I'm sure they weren't fond of the, it on the right when the, that movie came out. I'm sure that there were pe- plenty of people on the right who hated that movie the way they're going to be hating Fair Game. That doesn't make any difference though to well, how great it is. I remember at the time Nixon was hated so much he was just just disgraced out of office and. Uh, it took a good many years before the, even the right wing, the right wingers started coming around and saying, you know, Nixon wasn't such a bad president. And of course, compared to what Bush did in his presidency, or not even Bush, Bush is the people who were actually running the the White House. So like Dick Cheney and Karl Rove mainly. I mean, I don't even know how much you can lay at the fate of Bush because he was just such a, you know, just kind of a dumb... A- a, la- a lackey, kind of, a in lackey. a way. He, he wasn't pulling all the strings. He was having a lot of strings of his own pulled. Yeah, and the stuff they they did was, you know, to me, much worse than just the weird, paranoid, you know, surveillance stuff that Nixon was doing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but Nick- that's interesting that you say that uh, I, that the right was ready to um, throw Nixon under the bus, eager to, in fact, and, and, and put, put all that behind them. That's something that's changed now. Uh, people are especially right-wingers seem like that they really want to hold on to these heroes and not, 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 not have, 
it's still Bush. Anything that you say now that's bad that's going on in the country is automatically Bush bashing. Right. And people still are defensive of that administration. And they're, as you can tell by the comments on any post on Fair Game, they're still very defensive about um, blaming the Bush administration for uh, the kind of corrupt stuff they did with, with the Wilsons, you know, by leaking her name to the press. You know, now they're trying to blame the, the Democrats for that. Um, but, you know, somebody needs to, to be punished. Nobody was ever punished. Scooter Libby, you know, took the bullet and then his sentence was commuted. You know, he never, nobody ever paid for that crime. And it was a crime and it put a lot of people's lives in danger, according to the movie, you know. Um, uh, some critics have said that that was too heavy handed. I don't know how you feel about that, Craig, uh, the stuff with, they thought it was manipulative to use um, the citizens in Iraq who were depending on um, our government to get them out on the brink of war, you know. I wondered about that. In ter- I don't know the whole story well enough to, to pass judgment on it. If it was true, then I don't think it was heavy-handed at all. Um, I think it's important to point out why leaking her name was such a terrible thing. Um, I think that's not really necessarily clear to people, not just the danger that it put her in, but it put her operatives in and the people that those operatives were working with. Okay. All right, guys. Well, we, that concludes our, our um, fourth episode of the podcast and um we'll see you next week right is that a good ending it's a good ending it's more it's it's more fun every week it's funner and funner every week Mm, okay i got nothing i'm done (laughs) all right (laughs) funner and funner (laughs) and our mascot buzzkill And that's all the time we have left for this week. Um, Be sure and tune in to awardsdaily.com for Oscar news and livinginsinema.com for all the latest film reviews. You can send an email to craig at livinginsinema.com or awardsdaily at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.